Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Long Civil Rights Movement, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Confrontation. In December 1955, the nation's attention was turned to Montgomery, Alabama, where the Confederacy had been formed back in 1861. Montgomery's buses were segregated by a floating line, which said that African Americans had to give up their seats to white patrons and sit in the back of the bus or leave it entirely. Bus drivers were often armed and routinely shot African American men who violated this code, and they even wounded African American service members, to which the Army and Navy could do nothing. On December 1st, the seamstress Rosa Parks refused to move to the back when the bus driver ordered her to do so. So she was arrested and taken to jail. Parks was the daughter of a veteran of the First World War, and she was an active member in the local branch of the NAACP, and led many investigations of black girls being raped by white men in an attempt to bring them to justice. Though few ever made it to court, and those that did were usually thrown out. After her arrest, the NAACP responded by organizing the Montgomery bus boycott, but the NAACP needed the support of local black churches. So please advance to the next slide entitled Martin Luther King Jr. Despite the fact that the NAACP sought church support, middle-class black church leaders in Montgomery did not want to upset elite whites because they did not want to hurt their influence and relationship with these men. However, the young new pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Martin Luther King Jr., rose to the fore. King actually did not want to do this, and he did not think he would be good at it, but he actually excelled in this role and became the face of the modern civil rights movement. So, a little bit of background about the man. MLK was the son of middle-class parents and his father was the minister at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. MLK went to school at Morehouse College and then seminary school before getting his Ph.D. in theology at Boston College, where he met Coretta Scott, his future wife. King and his wife actually did not want to come back to the South, but college-educated middle-class African Americans felt it was their duty to return there to help their communities before returning to the North to make a life. While we remember King as a hero, he was also a deeply flawed human being. He was actually very sensitive about his weight. He drank, smoked cigarettes, and philandered about. He was also not really appreciated by whites while he was alive, often being called a nuisance, a socialist, and worse. King was well-versed in nonviolent principles of Mahatma Gandhi and the concept of civil disobedience written by Henry David Thoreau, and of course Christian theology. Thoreau in particular believed that if a law was unjust, it was your duty, your moral obligation, to challenge that unjust law, because a law cannot change unless it is challenged. King believes this wholeheartedly, and all of these principles will inform how MLK conducted his protest movements in the coming years. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Boycott. For almost a year, Montgomery's African-American community carpooled and walked instead of riding buses, even in bad weather. 
many black women worked in upper-class white homes as maids, cooks, and other duties, and many lost their jobs as a result of this boycott. In order to stop the boycott, Montgomery passed ordinances preventing carpooling, and the police arrested people merely for walking. So they are really doing everything they can to stop this movement. In January 1956, MLK's home was bombed, and many people wanted to riot. But instead, King told the people to be calm, because violence would not help them. In the end, in November 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that the city's segregated bus system was unconstitutional, and the city decided not to fight this, mostly because the boycott had cost the city a lot of revenue. So this is an economic incentive to integrate. The point is that this shows that nonviolent economic pressure can work. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Who Was Orville Faubus? Interestingly, the evidence indicates that Faubus was not your typical segregationist. Up to this point, he had said that local Arkansas school districts had to decide if they would desegregate or not. He actually appointed some African Americans to Democratic committees, and he had grown up in a socialist household in Madison County, where few African Americans lived, and his middle name was Eugene, after the socialist political candidate Eugene Debs. Faubus was a political realist. In the 1956 gubernatorial election, he had been attacked for not being a hardcore segregationist by Jim Johnson, an Arkansas representative who introduced the Citizens' Council to the state. Faubus made the decision to become a segregationist after 1956 because it was a political calculation. So in 1957, he has to prove that he is a real segregationist, which will lead us to the Little Rock Crisis. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Little Rock Crisis. On September 3, 1957, Little Rock Central High was scheduled to begin the school year with a few black students. But the day before, Governor Orville Faubus deployed the Arkansas National Guard to surround the school. Now, till the day he died, he insisted that he had sent troops there to prevent violence. So, a little background. Central High was picked for integration because it was the working-class school, not the rich school in town, and massive resistance had radicalized working-class whites to be vehemently against integration, and so they resent desegregation being thrust upon them instead of the middle class. For weeks, Faubus and Virgil Blossom, the Little Rock superintendent, were inundated with angry calls from the Capital Citizens Council which is the Little Rock chapter of the White Citizens Council, as well as the Mother's League, which is the female branch of the Citizens Council, and they demanded that he stop integration. Faubus was also told that there were busloads of black communists who were coming to town to cause violence, and many in the community buy this conspiracy theory. So Faubus says he is calling out the National Guard to stop violence and protect property, but really he is doing so to stop integration. So on September 3rd, the school year is supposed to begin, and the nine black students, called the Little Rock Nine, were supposed to attend school that day. Daisy Bates, who was the president of the NAACP in Arkansas, found out that this was happening and called eight of the students to tell them about it and make new plans. But the ninth student, Elizabeth Eckford, did not get the message 
because her family did not own a phone. So Eckford goes to school alone, wearing a dress that she had meticulously worked on for weeks so she could look her best for the first day. While she was walking alone, an angry white mob surrounded her, mostly made up of white women, and they were calling for her to be lynched. Eckford moved towards the National Guard, hoping that they would protect her, but instead she was turned away to face the mob. It really looked like Eckford would be murdered, but a white woman came out of the crowd and got her on board a bus to safety. In the aftermath, a federal judge issued an injunction, ordering Faubus to remove the guard, and he did so, but he replaced them with local police. Then, on September 23rd, the black students tried again, but the white mob, which had grown considerably, resisted them. There weren't enough police to maintain order, and Faubus did nothing. The mob is ramped up, and the cops get the kids into the school, and when the mob hears that the kids are inside the school, they begin calling for a lynching, and chant, just give us one. So they are asking to be given a school child to be killed because this mob has its blood up. The cops do not know what to do, and one asks, what are we supposed to do, make them draw straws? So the kids were loaded into a police car and taken out of the back to escape this murder mob. While this is going on, the Soviet Union is using this as anti-American propaganda. They say, look at this governor defying the president of the United States. The president and the country must be weak. So the president needs to act, and he is pissed, since Faubus promised he would not let this happen. In response, Eisenhower sent in 1,000 troops from the 101st Airborne to uphold the law and escort the students inside. And as you can see, Ike wanted civil order, not civil rights. And there's a clip on the PowerPoint you should click in order to watch it. While in Little Rock, the 101st Airborne, which had been an integrated unit, was forced to segregate because they worried that black soldiers might be seen as incendiary to white segregationists. The 101st Airborne stays there for most of the year, but they aren't allowed to go in classrooms or in bathrooms. So inside these rooms, these African-American students are tortured by their white peers all year long. In May 1958, the only senior, Ernest Green, is asked not to walk for graduation to prevent any disruption, but he said he did not go through hell to not take part in this ceremony which he deserved. When he walked, Dr. Martin Luther King was there watching, and Green became the first black man to graduate from Little Rock Central High. The following year, the Little Rock School District voted to close the schools for the 58-59 school year rather than integrate, and this is all part of massive resistance and other states were following suit as well. This is illegal and unpopular over time, especially among working-class mothers who need their kids to be in school so they can work. Upper-class families did not have this problem. They could just send their kids to private academies in the suburbs, or into other states where there was de facto segregation. But the point is that working-class agitation forces the school board to act, and so for the 59-60 school year, the schools are reopened and are integrated with token compliance. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Lessons. 
massive resistance could be good politics in the South. After the Little Rock Crisis, Faubus was re-elected four more times, and he served a total of 12 years. Traditionally, governors only served two two-year terms in Arkansas. So in other words, massive resistance was good politics in the state, and Faubus's decision to embrace segregation worked out for him politically. Other Southern politicians were watching and learning, most notably Alabama governor George Wallace. Another lesson is that it would take individuals, not just court orders, to move the country forward toward racial justice. The next lesson is that television cameras would be helpful. Journalists and media coverage is vital. Middle-class Northern Americans need to be forced to care about what happens, so when there isn't coverage, they are unaware. But once coverage happens, they are outraged. Because Americans need to see for themselves the horrid racism towards children in the Jim Crow South. The next lesson is that the youth are invaluable because of their own actions and sacrifices. It will take more kids and young adults putting themselves on the line to get civil rights done. So no matter what anyone tells you, protest is not just for parents. You have a critical role to play as well. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Christianity and Civil Rights. As I've said, black churches were invaluable to black communities during and after Reconstruction. The NAACP had taken a legalistic course, and it was a long, slow haul for minimum compliance. So in 1958, churches take the lead when King and other preachers formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC. This brought black churches and preachers to the forefront of the movement that had previously been led by lawyers, and it would take it in a new direction. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Nonviolent Protests. On February 4, 1960, black college students sat down at a whites-only lunch counter at the Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, African Americans were allowed to buy whatever they wanted from the store, they just couldn't eat or drink a cup of coffee at the lunch counter. Well, by sitting there, their action was labeled a sit-in, and within several days, thousands of students had joined them and crowds surrounded the store. Within two months, there were 54 similar demonstrations in nine states, and these protesters were beaten and harassed. And in one place, the doors were locked when the kids were at the counter, and the building was fumigated. All of these protests are spontaneous. This isn't the NAACP or the SCLC. This is kids and college students organizing at the grassroots level. Prior to the sit-in movement, these kids had been trained in nonviolent tactics. They were taught how to take being screamed at, spit on, and beaten without acting violently. These kids were your age when they did this and had grown up with the image of Till's murdered body, which motivates them to sacrifice. And because of the Great Migration, their parents were better off than their grandparents. So this is the most educated black youth group than ever before in American history. Later that spring, 200 student leaders came together in Raleigh, North Carolina to create the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. 
critical to this formation was Ella Baker, who helped organize SNCC, and she is really seen as the grandmother of the unit, despite the fact that there is really no top-down leadership structure. Another famous member of SNCC is John Lewis, who later became a U.S. congressman from Georgia. SNCC was also an integrated group, and they staged sit-ins, kneel-ins in segregated churches, and wade-ins at local pools. Needless to say, these demonstrators were often harassed and attacked, and even acid was poured in a pool while they swam, yet they still did not react. What I'm trying to show you is that by 1960, the civil rights movement was quite diverse, as it included lawyers, preachers, students, labor leaders, and most importantly, individuals who were willing to sacrifice their bodies. One last point I want to make is that women were obviously critical to the civil rights movement, despite the fact that only men are remembered. In order to help organize civil rights protests, women met in beauty shops or salons, where it did not appear odd for women to congregate so they could plan their actions in the open without harassment. In addition, beauty shops also serve as a critical spot for aftercare for black female protesters. Just imagine, you've sat at a lunch counter, you've had honey, milk, sugar, or anything else in sight dumped on your head, your makeup is running, your hair is disheveled, and you've been physically accosted, so you're very shaken up. So you go to the beauty shop. This is a safe place for black women to share their experience while getting their hair and makeup fixed by people who understand and appreciate them. It may not sound like a big deal to some, but these were important sites of socialization and self-care, where people who were physically and psychologically assaulted could piece themselves back together. And the historian Tiffany Gill calls this beauty shop politics. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Freedom Rides. In May 1961, 13 Corps-sponsored Freedom Riders, seven black and six whites, were boarded onto two buses in Washington, D.C. and headed out for New Orleans. They wanted to test the Supreme Court's 1946 ruling against segregated seating on buses traveling across state lines. There's actually two of these decisions. The first is Irene Morgan v. Commonwealth of Virginia in 1946 and Boynton v. Virginia in 1960. Anyway, on May 14, 1861, in Anniston, Alabama, white mobs attacked these buses with rocks and firebombs. Much of this violence was shown on TV. And JFK and RFK, who were initially reluctant to act, because they needed white Southern votes to ensure their re-election in 1964, were now forced to act because of this violence. JFK dispatched 600 federal marshals to protect these Freedom Riders, though they never ultimately made it to New Orleans. They had been quietly arrested in Mississippi, but regardless, they had captured the nation's attention and forced the JFK administration to act please go ahead and click on the link on the PowerPoint to watch a video and then proceed to the next slide, Ole Miss. In September 1962, 29-year-old Air Force veteran James Meredith 
tried to enroll at Old Miss. RFK ended up calling the governor of Mississippi and asked him to keep order. The governor agreed, but then the Mississippi governor and a white mob tried to stop Meredith, and riots broke out in front of the campus. Again, the JFK administration was compelled to get involved, and they sent in 400 federal marshals and 3,000 troops to restore order, and this is the largest mobilization of U.S. troops on American soil since the Civil War. The marshals then escorted Meredith to class. In the aftermath of this event, Meredith began the one-man March Against Fear from the Peabody Hotel in Memphis to the state capitol in Jackson, Mississippi to encourage other black Mississippians to vote in 1966. Unfortunately, during the march, Meredith was shot by a hardware store clerk and could not continue on. So MLK completes the march to Jackson in 1966 with 15,000 followers. By the way, James Meredith is still alive to this day, which illustrates that this is very recent history. The point is that once again, individuals force the government to act on behalf of civil rights. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Birmingham Movement. The next few slides have several videos that I want you to watch, so be sure to click on all of the links. In May 1963, Martin Luther King and SCLC led peaceful protests in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the most racist cities in the United States. City Police Chief Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor was an avowed racist, and King and others hoped that Connor and his police force would retaliate against peaceful protesters. Now they want the police to react because King believes in Thoreau, and since laws are unjust, People need to be arrested en masse, which will then allow the NAACP to come in and challenge the validity of this unjust law. They also need the media there, with the cameras rolling. So middle-class northern whites will see the violence of the Jim Crow South and push their representatives to act in the defense of these people. The first few days of protests, many parents were marching and were arrested. And the city then raised prices on bail to prevent these individuals from getting released, and so many were fired from their jobs as a result. Then, many African-American children decided to march on their own, because they wouldn't have to miss work, and because if the mob attacked them, they would look awful. Now, MLK is very trepidatious about including children in this movement, since these kids are 10 to 16 years old, but they make the decision on their own to sacrifice for the cause. So as these children protest, Bull Connor releases his dogs. He uses clubs and high-pressure fire hoses that spray water at 100 pounds per square inch. So it's literally ripping the clothes off of these children's backs. The world is watching, and everyone is appalled. JFK himself was horrified by these events, and he gave a full-throated endorsement of civil rights, a position they had never taken before. In the end, the Birmingham stores integrated, so this protest was successful. While all of this is going on in Birmingham, another event rocks the nation. On June 11, 1963, Alabama Governor George Wallace 
stood in the doorway of the University of Alabama to block black students from entering. Wallace was a committed racist who had said in his inaugural address earlier that year that, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, end quote. In front of the University of Alabama, Wallace was confronted by the Deputy Attorney General and eventually stepped aside. But like Faubus in Arkansas, Wallace knew that massive resistance was good politics in the South, and it eventually catapulted him to a presidential run in 1968. Later that night, JFK addressed the nation. Quote, Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay. End quote. Watching at home was Medgar Evers, the leading civil rights figure inside Mississippi during this movement. Previously, he had went on television in Mississippi and declared that African Americans deserve to have their voting rights protected. And because of this, he was targeted and there were public calls for his assassination. After JFK's speech, Evers was very excited about the president's position, and he wanted to rush home and tell his wife. He normally left out of the passenger side of his car for a safer walk into his home, but in his excitement, he exited out of the driver's door. Waiting in the bushes was a KKK member who shot Evers dead. The man accused of this murder had his defense fees paid by the Citizens Council illustrating that they did support the violence of the KKK. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, I Have a Dream. On June 19th, JFK sent a civil rights bill to Congress, but the bill got bogged down in Congress and was filibustered by South Carolinian Senator Strom Thurmond. As you recall, he was the 1948 Dixiecrat presidential candidate. This act continued to languish in Congress, and it would take the legislative skill of the next president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, to finally get the bill passed. On August 28th, 250,000 people, one quarter of whom were white, participated in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And so you see from the picture, this is not just about race, but also economic equality. 
The climax of the march was Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and you should go ahead and listen to the clip. King famously said, quote, And when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join their hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. This is one of the most powerful moments and greatest speeches in American history. But it would take more acts of violence before the dream was fulfilled. On September 15, 1963, four children were attending Sunday school at the 16th Street Baptist Church. These are just four little girls, just trying to learn about Christ in their beloved church. But instead, the church was bombed, and four young lives were cut short by white supremacist terrorists. Though the FBI concluded in 1965 that five men were responsible, they were not prosecuted until 1977, and then only one of them was convicted of murder. It was not until 2001 and 2002, respectively, when the current senator of Alabama, Doug Jones, prosecuted two more terrorists for this action. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing marked another turning point in the civil rights movement and led to more support in Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Open Mississippi Up to the Country. As we have seen, the first step of the Civil Rights Movement was to fight against segregation. Now with the Civil Rights Act passed, the next step is to fight against disfranchisement. In the summer of 1964, SNCC decided to, quote, open up Mississippi and register voters in the most dangerous place in the world for these students. This begins the so-called Freedom Summer, and you should watch the video. As you have seen, the violence is horrific. 1,062 people were arrested. 80 Freedom Summer workers were beaten. 37 churches were bombed. 30 black homes were bombed. Four people were critically wounded. And at least three Mississippi blacks were murdered because of their support for the movement. But what gets national attention is when four civil rights workers were killed one of whom in a head-on collision. But three of these other workers, James Cheney of Meridian, Mississippi, and Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner of New York City, were murdered together in what has been called the Mississippi Burning Murders. These two white guys from the North believed in civil rights, but had never experienced the violence of Jim Crow South. While in Mississippi, these three men had been arrested by a local cop who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He then released these men to the Ku Klux Klan, who brutally murdered these civil rights workers and hid their bodies. The families of these white men begged to find out what happened to their family members, and in response, the FBI is called in to investigate these murders and find the victims. This is required, 
because the Mississippi governor, Paul B. Johnson Jr., and the senator, James Eastland, said this was all fake news and that it wasn't true, as people were just trying to make the state look bad. Well, since state officials won't act, the FBI descends on Neshoa County, where they find the bodies and confirm the fate of these men. And by the way, Neshoba County is where Ronald Reagan will kick off his presidential campaign in 1980. While the FBI is investigating these murders, they also found several other bodies, including a 14-year-old boy, two male college students, and five other unidentified African Americans from the state, but none of these deaths had garnered much attention outside of their local communities. 44 days after their murder, the bodies of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were found underneath an earthen dam. The two white men had been shot in the heart, but Cheney had been beaten, castrated, and shot three times. The murder of these three civil rights workers, combined with the 16th Street bombing, helped LBJ pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. By December, 19 men were accused in the murder, including the sheriff and the deputy sheriff, but Mississippi officials refused to try the men for murder, a state crime, so the FBI had to bring these perpetrators on federal charges. At the trial, the jury deadlocked, though ultimately seven men were convicted, representing the first ever convictions in Mississippi for killing a civil rights worker. But many others escaped justice, including a preacher who got off because the lone juror said that he could never convict a preacher. The trial was later reopened in 2005, which garnered another conviction. The point is that without federal help in investigating these murders, the perpetrators would have gotten away and never been brought to justice. Not only did state officials refuse to prosecute, but as we saw, members of law enforcement and the clergy were active participants. So the national spotlight was critical to getting these three men justice, unlike the other murdered individuals whom the FBI found, because there was no national attention paid by the country to these poor victims. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The March. In January 1965, Martin Luther King led a campaign to register voters in Selma, Alabama, where African Americans made up 50% of the population, but only 1% of the voters. In February, a black teenager was killed, so King pushed forward with plans for a 54-mile protest march from Selma to Montgomery. On Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 600 marchers crossed the bridge on the edge of Selma, and they were attacked by policemen armed with clubs, cattle prods, tear gas, and chains. John Lewis, the future U.S. representative, was there at the march, and when he was asked what they should do, he said, Pray. The police then waded into the marchers and beat them while the news cameras rolled. Please play the video on the PowerPoint. After this atrocity, on March 15th, LBJ addressed Congress and the nation. Quote, There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. 
there is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. So I ask you to join me in working long hours, nights and weekends if necessary, to pass this bill. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really all of us, who must overcome the crippling legacy and bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. End quote. Two days later, he sent the voting rights bill to Congress. And he also notified Alabama Governor George Wallace that the Alabama National Guard would be federalized and would protect the Selma marchers on their journey to Montgomery. 25,000 people ultimately joined the march, and on March 25th, they reached the state capitol, where King delivered a speech. Several months later in August, Congress passed and LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which said no state could apply any requirement or test, meaning literacy tests, whose effect would disfranchise people on account of race and color. And it also said that the federal government could monitor voting registration in states that had a history of disfranchisement. This was an amazing political victory for African Americans. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Riots. Five days after the Voting Rights Act was passed, riots erupted in the black neighborhood in Los Angeles called Watts. The Watts riots in 1965 were sparked by the arrest of a black motorist, Marquette Fry, for drunk driving. When Fry's mother intervened, a crowd gathered, and the arrest became a flashpoint for anger against the police. But the deeper causes, as documented by the McCone Commission, investigated the riots and found that poverty, inequality, and racial discrimination in the passage of a discriminatory housing act motivated these people to riot. After nearly a week of unrest, 34 people, 25 of whom were African American, were dead, and more than 1,000 were injured, and 600 buildings had been damaged or destroyed. These thriving business districts, with mostly white-owned stores, were burned to the ground, and eventually the National Guard was called in to put down the unrest. Now, we've watched footage from the Civil Rights Movement throughout this unit, and we've seen how important footage was to the success of the early Civil Rights Movement. But during the Watts riots, news footage is going to begin to change people's perceptions. I'm going to show you the coverage from Watts, and I want you to keep in mind that there were very serious problems in this area before the riots broke out, and that there were accounts of police officers indiscriminately shooting African Americans throughout the riot. Over the next three years, similar riots erupted in Newark, Chicago, Atlanta, and Detroit, where 43 people died, and the army was sent in to restore order. These riots were spontaneous and were not directly connected to the civil rights movement or to the growing black power movement. However, middle-class whites watching on TV linked the riots to black power and the civil rights movement in their mind, 
and consequently, many soured on the great society and civil rights, much like many white northerners had soured on Reconstruction in the 1870s. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Changes to the Movement. Some scholars believe a change of sorts occurred in the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s. It became more focused on the plight of the urban poor, especially in the North where it seemed that change was very slowly coming, if it came at all. And the issues facing the urban poor African Americans in the North were different than the plight of African Americans in the South. The issue were more systemic and less obvious in a lot of cases. And this led to an increase in frustration among African American communities, especially among young men who are often the target of racial prejudice and violence. In addition, you see the rise of new black leaders like Malcolm X. He had been born Malcolm Little and converted to Islam and changed his surname to signify that he had lost his African identity in the white United States. And like Marcus Garvey before him, Malcolm preached black separatism and early on was especially militant. Later on, though, he began distancing himself from the separatist militant blacks when he was finally shot by a rival in 1965. Members of the growing black power movement similarly wanted to emphasize their African-American distinctiveness in their dress, hairstyles, and names, and also embrace separatism. But the Black Panthers were first and foremost a community organizing group who helped their local individuals. Many white Americans think that black power is radical, but it merely tries to alleviate the problems of poverty and take pride in their heritage. The point is that while nonviolent protest was successful in many advances in civil rights, social unrest caused by systemic racism, oppression, and violence led many whites to abandon their support for social justice. And we can see this live on to this day. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Please listen to part three of the long civil rights movement. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.